On the evening of December 28, 1956, two sisters left their home in Chicago's Brighton Park neighborhood. Barbara and Patricia Grimes were big fans of Elvis Presley and had begged their mother to let them see the singer's first movie, Love Me Tender, at the nearby Brighton Theatre. It's believed they watched two showings of the film and then left for home, but they never made it. Chilling thrills, unexplained mysteries and creepy stories that actually occurred. Welcome to Freakier Than Fiction. I'm your host Chad and each episode, as you know, together we will dive into the world of the unknown. So if that kind of thing interests you and you haven't done this already, then hit that follow or subscribe button and that way you won't miss the next freaky episode. As this podcast is intended for mature audiences, discretion is advised, especially in this episode as some listeners may find the following case disturbing. In this episode, we're taking a look at what was called the Love Me Tender Murders. It was Friday, December 28, 1956. Dwight D. Eisenhower was about to begin his second term as president. Round steak was only 59 cents a pound, and Elizabeth Taylor was engaged to Mike Todd. 15-year-old Barbara Grimes and her sister Patricia, three days shy of her 13th birthday, ate dinner at their home at 3634 South Damon and headed for the Brighton Theatre at 4223 South Archer. They were devoted Elvis Presley fans and would be viewing his new movie, Love Me Tender, for the 11th time. For several days, Barbara and Patricia Grimes had been asking their mother to let them go to the movies once again to see Love Me Tender, the new movie by their undisputed idol. Elvis Presley. Loretta, the girl's mother, didn't like the idea. On the one hand, the finances of a lower middle class family of separated parents with seven children did not give much luxury. On the other, she did not like it when her daughters aged only 15 and 12 left late during the cold Chicago winter and returned at night. On December the 28th, 1956, she relented and repented for the rest of her days. Loretta gave $2.50 to Barbara, the oldest. It was enough for bus tickets to the Brighton Park Theatre, where they would show the film, pay for the tickets and perhaps buy some goodies. At the last minute, she gave them 50 cents more in case they wanted to stay for the next show. The girls had already seen the Elvis movie, but they always enjoyed it as if it was the first time seeing it. Their mother expected them home by 11.45, but sensed that something was wrong when they hadn't returned at 11.30. At midnight, she sent her daughter, Teresa, 17, and her son, Joey, 14, to the bus stop at 35th and Hoyne to watch for them. 
after three buses, Teresa and Joey returned home without the girls. A number of people reported seeing the girls. Dorothy Weinart, a school chum of Patricia's, sat with them in the theatre. CTA driver Joseph Smock thought they exited his bus at Archer and Western Avenues at 11.05pm. Jack Franklin, a northwest side security guard, offered directions to two girls he later concluded were Barbara and Patricia. He had passed them near Lawrence and Central Park Avenues on the morning of December 29. Another classmate of Patricia's, Catherine Borak, eating at Angelo's restaurant at 3551 South Archer, thought she saw the younger sister walk by at 6.30pm Saturday with two girls she didn't recognise. The disappearance of the Grimes sisters sparked one of the largest missing person cases in the history of Cook County. A citywide search for the girls was quickly initiated, to which hundreds of police officers were assigned full-time. Cook County officers were assisted by colleagues from surrounding suburbs, and a task force devoted solely to locating the sisters was formed, with the ground search initiated on December the 29th being bolstered by hundreds of local volunteers. Police conducted door-to-door canvassing throughout Brighton Park, and numerous canals and rivers were dredged. In addition, more than 15,000 flyers were distributed to local homes, and parishioners of the Sisters' Church offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to their whereabouts. As a result of this coordinated investigation, 300,000 people would be questioned, with some 2,000 individuals subjected to serious interrogation pertaining to their potential guilt. Although there were two arrests and charges brought against individuals who confessed to the crime, they subsequently collapsed, with one individual, Edward Bedwell, asserting that he had been coerced into giving a confession after being subjected to a prolonged interrogation. Despite the police efforts and an extensive media appeal, producing many reported sites of the girls, there was little in the way of hard evidence that was yielded. Although several teenagers who had been at the Brighton Theatre on December the 28th did inform investigators they'd seen the sisters conversing with and then entering a car driven by a young man whose physical appearance had been similar to that of Elvis Presley. The vehicle described by these eyewitnesses was consistently described as being a Mercury model. Prior to the implementation of the task force, and despite protests from the girls' parents, several investigators initially assigned to the case theorised that the sisters had either run away from home or were voluntarily staying with boyfriends. Although the sisters were front-page news by December 31st, their disappearance would only be seriously considered as a missing persons case and thus appropriately treated by such by investigators after approximately one week had passed without family and friends receiving any form of contact from either girl. Nonetheless, extensive media appeals were conducted imploring both sisters to return home and for any eyewitnesses to contact the police, resulting in numerous alleged sightings of the sisters 
would be reported to police as late as January the 9th. And these reports often described one or both girls as having been seen in various business establishments. These sightings supported several investigators' initial theories that the girls had opted to leave home of their own accord. Theories also abounded that the sisters may possibly have travelled to Nashville, Tennessee to see Presley in concert, or that they had simply left their home of their own volition as a means of emulating Presley's lifestyle. In the event that her daughters had actually been kidnapped, Loretta Grimes publicly pleaded, If someone is holding them, please let the girls call me, adding, I'll forgive them from the bottom of my heart. On January the 19th, an official statement was issued from Presley's Graceland estate. The televised statement read, If you are good Presley fans, you'll go home and ease your mother's worries. Presley is also known to have made a direct radio plea to the Grimes sisters, imploring the girls to return home to their mother. On January the 22nd, 1957, more than three weeks after the girls had disappeared, the temperature rose in Chicago and the snow began to melt. Leonard Prescott was driving east on German Church Road in Burr Ridge when behind a guardrail he thought he saw two mannequins peeking out of the snow. Since he was in a hurry he didn't stop. He went back to his house to get his wife and on the way back they decided to go and see what those flesh-coloured things were that he had seen. The first to arrive was Marie and Leonard must have held her because she passed out. It was only then that he saw that the mannequins were actually two naked and frozen bodies. The bodies of the little sisters Grimes lay on flat ground covered with snow just behind the guardrail. Barbara was lying on her left side with her legs slightly bent towards her torso. Patricia was on her back with her body above her sister's head and her own head turned to the right. The police closed the area and went to look for Joseph, the girl's father, to identify them. It's them, he said, and they had to grab him so he wouldn't throw himself on the bodies. From then on, the police did everything wrong. While they were moving the bodies to the morgue, some 160 people, including agents and volunteers, went around the areas looking for evidence. If there was anything that could identify the killer, they destroyed them. The autopsy turned into a pitched battle between forensics who did not agree on the date and the cause of the deaths. The most likely thing some said is that they would have died in the early hours of December 29th, for others five days later. Toxicology reports determined that the girls had not used alcohol or drugs. No clothes were found at the crime scene and the bodies were clean as if they'd been washed. Everyone agreed that Barbara had had sex a few days before her death, although they could not define whether it was forced or not. Two sides were formed there again. Some wanted to put that information in the report, while others preferred not to because of the girl's good memory. There were wounds on the bodies, but none seemed fatal. They ended up agreeing to define the deaths as murders, but what was unusual was the cause secondary shock due to hypothermia. One of the experts refused to sign the report, 
for the head of Cook's forensic office, Harry Gloss, they'd been beaten to death. He gave a press conference to establish a position and there said that there were numerous signs of violence on the faces of the girls which could not be attributed to the work of rats on corpses as the report said. He also claimed that the two girls had suffered repeated sexual assaults for several days. After that press conference, he was left without a job. The case became a stigma for the Chicago police. The media accused them of being inefficient and the Grimes family complained about the findings of the autopsy and the investigation that was not proceeding. They were to find culprits and went on the hunt for suspects. The first to fall was Edward Lee Benny Bedwell, a 21-year-old homeless man suspected because of his resemblance to Elvis Presley. In 1957, there were tens of thousands of young people who dressed and combed their hair like the singer of the moment, and the erratic statement of the restaurant owner who said he had seen them with the girls. Benny confessed everything the police wanted, but when they asked him for details, his version of events was delusional, and they ended up releasing him. The second suspect was Max Fleeg a 17-year-old boy who also confessed to kidnapping and killing the two girls. He agreed, although it was illegal because he was a minor, to be tested with the lie detector. It didn't happen, as he was lying. Silas Jane was arrested because he owned a stable where, three years earlier, two murdered children had appeared. It had nothing to do with the previous crime, and it had nothing to do with that of the Grimes sisters. His alibi was confirmed by more than 10 people. Five months after the murder of Barbara and Patricia, the investigation went from one frustration to another, until May 27th, when the girl's mother received a phone call. I kidnapped them, stripped them and killed them. I know something about one of your daughters that no one else knows, not even the police. The youngest girl's toes were crossed on her toes. She heard a man's voice say before it laughed, and then the line cut. It was true, and the police had not leaked that data. It was the last clue. The investigation into the disappearance and deaths of Barbara and Patricia Grimes remained open, but for almost 60 years it did not contribute anything else. Detective Raymond Johnson of the West Chicago Police had always wanted to write a book. He retired from the service in 2011 and began to review old cases in the city until he ran into that of the Grimes sisters. He was attracted to those never resolved deaths and began to investigate them. He soon found a fact that the city police had not taken into account and that could lead to the discovery of the murderer's identity. A year after the deaths of Patricia and Barbara, a man named Charles Leroy Melquist was arrested for the murder of Bonnie Lee Scott, a 15-year-old girl whose body was decapitated two months after she was kidnapped. The victim was naked, as were the Grimes sisters, and the place where they found the body was about 15 kilometers from where the bodies of the other girls had appeared. 
Reviewing the files, Johnson also discovered that Loretta Grimes had received another phone call from a man whose voice was the same as the first. The date of this second communication coincided with that of Bonnie's disappearance. On that occasion, the voice on the phone said, I committed another perfect crime. This is another one the cops won't solve. Loretta reported the call to the police, but nobody had yet been found. When they found Bonnie Lee Scott's body, nobody connected the case with the Grimes sisters. With that information, more than 50 years later, the retired detective went to see his active colleagues and asked them to investigate the connection and questioned Bonnie's killer, if he was alive and if they could find him. He was late. Charles Leroy Melquist had died just a few months earlier in state prison where he was serving a life sentence. The truth may lie with him, but who knows? 1957 doesn't seem all that long ago, and there's still plenty of living memory around to plummet secrets. Perhaps this cold case will one day fall after all. Thank you so much for listening to the Freakier Than Fiction podcast. If you got something out of today's episode and you haven't done this already, then hit that follow or subscribe button and that way you won't miss the next freaky installment. And I'd love your feedback as it will really let me know what you think about this episode and others that you may have already listened to. So please take the time to leave a review and tell me what you'd like to hear in upcoming episodes. If you want to get in touch, you can find a Linktree account in the description of this episode and it has all the links to my social media accounts, including Facebook, Reddit, Instagram, YouTube and TikTok. I make sure to read all my direct messages and answer them personally. So if I see you on Instagram, Facebook, Reddit, YouTube, TikTok or anywhere else, just know that I really appreciate all the support. And remember, take care out there and be aware, for the night is alive with a darkness that hungers for your soul. The mysteries of the unknown are like a siren's call tempting you to explore the depths of the macabre. But be warned, dear listeners, for those who delve too deep may find themselves lost forever in a world of madness and terror. So, as you step into the shadows, keep your eyes peeled and your mind open. For in this world of the inexplicable, there are no guarantees, except for one, that when you tune into the next episode of Freakier Than Fiction, you'll be diving headfirst into the unknown. See you in the next episode.